This is Louisiana Considered. I'm Carl Lengel, and today we'll get some insight to the hotel industry with American Hotel and Lodging Association President and CEO Chip Rogers. Up first, along the Gulf Coast, the arrival of the festival season and spring often help us to put off the apprehension of another hurricane season. Recently, as the random storms increase in strength, size, and variety of landing locations, Hurricane season is drawing attention further and further inland. The First Street Foundation recently released its seventh national climate risk assessment, Worsening Winds. The First Street report highlights the impact of increasing risk from hurricane winds at a property level and how hurricane events reaching new areas and new intensities will change over the next 30 years due to a changing climate. Joining us now to discuss the report and the Washington Post's deep dive into the data is one of the reporters on the story, Brady Dennis. Brady, thanks so much for taking some time with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. So at the outset, the article points out two immediate populations who are likely to be affected by these findings. Can you share those observations with us? Sure. Well, when you look across the data here that um, First Street Foundation compiled, a a few things jump out, you know, as far as who is likely to be affected by this. And um, in one sense, you know, a lot of these places are places that people are moving as we as we know people are moving um, all across the southeast and, and have been and those uh, spots of population growth are expected to continue you know in the decades ahead so um, we expect that people will continue to flock to these places that will likely see higher risks from hurricane winds into the future and you know beyond that drilling down a little further um, my my colleagues here at the post um, you know, we're able to discern that in 2023, more than I think it was 40% of the country's black population lives in zones that are deemed at risk for hurricane wind damage. But, you know, 30 years from now, that number could rise to about 55% of the black population. Um, and and, and um, so, so you see predominantly minority um, populations in the way and, and really just overall more people in the way of these storms in the future if the population trends continue. We're not just talking about the the black populations, but certainly Asian. There's a strong Asian population along the Gulf Coast here and in Texas and across the Gulf Coast, actually. But also and Hispanic populations, too, that are a large portion in uh, the states of Texas and Florida, for example, and other states, of course. Right. As you mentioned, the exposure for um, Asian populations is set to increase in these areas that we're talking about from about a quarter to a third of those populations over time, over the next few decades, uh, and somewhere just north of about 40% of the Hispanic population, you know, will also be in, in these areas of risk in the next 30 years. That's up from about 30% or so now. So, um, you know, across all of those populations, the, the risk rises. And, and the core reason I think that it rises is that the population itself is is growing in these areas and, and really growing quite quickly. So anybody that looks at anything in a data report is going to say, well, you know, how many storms did they actually track? How, wh- what do they get this from? Uh, sure, the climate is changing, but what's the proof here? Sure. So, I mean, it, it's good to point out up front that these are projections. I mean, these are not predictions of exactly what will happen, but they are projections based um on, on a lot of data, both historical data from the storms that we have had in the past, but also uh, climate data and environmental data, things we know about how the ocean is uh, warming, 
and about sea level rise and other um, environmental factors. And what these researchers did was take into account um, more than 50,000 possible hurricane tracks in the future, running through these through a, through a model about where hurricanes are most likely to hit and the most likely tracks over time. And drawing from those many, many possible hurricanes, because thankfully we shouldn't have 50,000 hurricanes in the next 30 years, but drawing from that, the simulations, the places that are most likely to see these risks into the future. So most Americans likely think of hurricane force winds as largely limited to the nation's coastlines, but the First Street report suggests that climate change is changing the future. How? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things that most struck me about um, about this particular study is that you know, significant winds are likely to push much farther inland than we see today. Obviously, the, the highest risk for hurricane force winds will is and will always be on the coastline, and that you know a storm starts to dissipate when it, after it makes landfall. But in these projections um, from First Street, what you see is that over time, um, as stronger storms hit the country, places further inland become more at risk for hurricane level winds or even tropical storm level winds. And, you know, how far inland was, was quite surprising to me. I mean, there are parts of, you know, Tennessee and, you know, even Illinois, Kentucky, that can see really quite a significant increase in, in wind gust speeds. That's the brief uh, high winds that can hit places and really do a lot of damage. That's not to say that, you know, uh, a Category 3 hurricane itself is going to plow through Kentucky, but if you have higher winds going through some of these places than they've seen in the past, it does raise questions about, you know, how prepared certain places are for things like this that they haven't seen or have had to deal with in, in, in decades past. Living in Louisiana, I can assure you that we are well aware not just of hurricanes, but of course tornadoes. So if you're living in Tennessee and you're used to tornadoes a lot, now you have to add hurricane watches to the list. We're speaking with Washington Post reporter Brady Dennis, who was on the analysis team examining First Street, the seventh national climate risk assessment, worsening winds. The report also shows that the North Atlantic storms are getting stronger and that more powerful storms are on the way. Tell us a little about that. Yeah, this is not a finding just of First Street. This is something that uh, any number of researchers have been looking at for years now, including the IPCC, which is um, a collection of scientists you know, backed by the UN that, that studies all, you know, all things climate um, and, has, and has for a long time. And what research shows is that not necessarily that we are seeing more storms, uh, more hurricanes um, forming and, and hitting land um, in the North Atlantic, but that of those that do form, there's a higher proportion of them that are, that are stronger, that are Category 3, 4, or 5, and that, that the incidence of those kind of storms has increased substantially since the 80s. And so I think going forward, what that means is that certainly where you are in Louisiana, but Obviously, a lot of other places along the coast are more at risk for more powerful storms when they do hit. Um, according to First Street's analysis, you know, they're saying right now there's, you know, three and a half million properties, as they calculate it, within the U.S. that have a chance of experiencing a Category 5 storm in any given year. In 30 years, that number could, um, could go to five and a half million. You can look at Category 4 likelihood, Category 3. For all of those, the numbers rise over time, and I think um, that's important 
to, to know and to think about and to prepare for because um, certainly places that have historically had hurricanes will, will still likely have them, but they might be of a different magnitude than, than what we have traditionally seen in the past. The, the study also points out that it's not just that magnitude, that intensity, it's how far to the north it goes. How is the, why are they tracking this way? Yeah, so another, another finding, um, which was in line with you know, other research that, that has come in recent years, is that hurricanes are overall tracking more northward um, in the Atlantic. That has to do with a, a range of factors. I, I'm not a scientist, but my understanding is that you know, that's everything from the moisture levels in a warmer atmosphere to changing large-scale wind patterns. And at the end of the day, essentially, tropical regions where hurricanes thrive are, are, are expanding, are getting larger, and that allows uh, the hurricane, where hurricanes form, uh, can become a larger area too. And as one scientist told me for the story, you know, the storms are living in their world and their world is growing. And what that means for us here in the United States is that uh, places further up the East Coast are going to become more at risk for, for these storms in the future. That can be places further north in Florida, which will still be a big bullseye for hurricanes in the future, but it can be, you know, places up along the, the mid-Atlantic and into the northeast could see higher and higher hurricane winds over time as these storms uh, overall shift shift to more northward path, pathways. Hurricane Sandy was not an outlier. Regardless of where one might live on the Gulf Coast, residents here are prone to think, oh, my state is the worst for hurricanes. And well, especially in Louisiana, we lived through Katrina and, and Ida here. But this exposure includes much of the eastern half of the U.S. Are these areas prepared for what's coming or what could be coming? Yeah, I think it's a really good question um, and one that, you know, we were trying to raise with, with this particular story. I mean, we should be clear, and this paper is also clear, that places um, like the Gulf Coast, Louisiana, of course, Florida, you know, are going to remain um, among the most exposed to hurricane risks now and into the future. There's just no getting around that. You know, there might be cities in Florida that are more danger in the future um, than they are now, and, and some, like Miami, that might have slightly less given the shift in hurricanes. But certainly most of the strong winds and most of the uh, damage we can still expect uh, to hit in places like that. I think where things get a little murkier and where there is a big question about preparedness is when you look at where the, the, the risk is rising the most, where maybe the risk is relatively low now, but into the future, it rises at least on a percentage level the most. And that's places like New York City. That was on the top of the list here in this First Street report about the places that could see the most significant jumps in what they call average annual losses, average damages over time. There's a lot of cities in Virginia, on the Virginia coast, in that list as well. Same with South Carolina. So I think um, where you are there on the Gulf Coast and in Florida, there, there will always be major risks from these storms. But what we're seeing is that other parts of the country are going to see their current risks rise over time as well. Brady, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Washington Post reporter Brady Dennis. I'm Carl Lengel. You're listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNO and WRKF. 
In 2020, the hotel industry was on the brink of collapse. Nearly three years later, thanks much to the resilience of hoteliers across the country, America's hotels are poised to begin a new era in operations, one where the challenges such as staffing shortages and economic factors, including inflation and borrowing costs, replace COVID as the top concerns. Joining us now to share some insight to the hotel industry is American Hotel and Lodging Association President and CEO Chip Rogers. Chip, thanks so much for taking some time with us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. So what were the key developments in 2022? Well, a return of the traveler, but specifically the leisure traveler. Um, So we saw people coming back out on the road, staying in hotels, which is a wonderful thing. But it wasn't the same type of traveler mix that we saw uh, before the pandemic. You know, a, a lot of the travelers that were missing were the uh, inner city white collar business traveler who might travel on a Tuesday and a Wednesday, um, stay in a hotel by themselves and not necessarily avail themselves of the restaurants and entertainment around the hotel, but really you know eat in the hotel, eat at the hotel bar. Those type of travelers um, were not back from pre-pandemic numbers. But the type of traveler that was and remains uh, is the leisure traveler and families going on vacation, not necessarily eating at the hotel, restaurant, and bar, but enjoying the city that's around the hotel. And when you have four people staying in a room for a week, there's a lot of different challenges that arise compared to that single business person that comes in, sleeps in the bed, probably doesn't disrupt anything else in the room, and leaves the next day to go on to the next trip. And so it was a different type of traveler in 2022 uh, than 2019. That's beginning to normalize in 2023, but, um, but 2022 is a big, big year for leisure travel. There was a term in the report, I love this, bleisure. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> so bleisure is a term that started to be used prior to the pandemic and then became, at least in the hotel industry, a common language during the pandemic. And that is the, the mixture of business and leisure. And of course, the obvious, now that people are working remotely, they are mixing those two things together. And it's, it's really happening in two ways. First, um, a lot of employers allow their employees to either work full-time remote, or even if they're not allowed to work full-time remote, they, in many instances, have two, three, four weeks they're allowed to work remote. And in those cases, the business leisure traveler, the leisure traveler, will go to a hotel, work from the hotel for a few hours a day, and then experience everything around them uh, in that given location uh, in, in more of a leisure way uh, the rest of the time. That's one type of leisure traveler. The other type of leisure traveler that's actually become more common are those people that do, in fact, travel for business. And they will um, you know, travel on a, to go to a business meeting on a, on a Wednesday and Thursday and then take off a Friday and remain in the city to enjoy that city uh, on a Friday and Saturday and throughout the weekend. And so the combination of those two type of leisure travelers has really changed the way that hotels operate, the services they operate, the expectations that guests have uh, for what the hotel is going to offer. We used to be able to easily define, all right, I'm on a business trip, I'm on a leisure trip. That's not so easily definable again. <laughs> so, you know, even some of the numbers that we have coming out of the pandemic, um, while I, I, we do our very best to characterize these numbers in the proper way, I think it's going to take us a little while to work through this to determine what is business travel, what's leisure travel, what's leisure travel, and, and how are we accounting for all three? 
So let's look ahead to 2023. The pandemic has decreased. That You saw that kind of going away, not going away necessarily, but diminishing to a degree in 2022. Looking ahead, that's probably a, a trend that will continue, I'm guessing? Yeah, the travel mix will trend back towards where it was um, before the pandemic. At some point, there's a, there was a lot of pent-up demand for that leisure travel. And so all those vacations people have been taking the last two years, maybe they take them less frequently. We, we certainly hope not. Um, but our expectation is we'll get back to more traditional travel after that. The one thing that um, has really impacted the industry, and this was a challenge in 2019, and that is the number of workers we have available to us. It's a major challenge now. And um, it's it, it really impacting the industry in a, in a very negative way. I mean, there are still many hotels across the country that have the demand to fill all their rooms or almost all their rooms. And yet they're having to shut down a portion of them just because there aren't enough workers. And again, that was a pre-pandemic problem that has only gotten worse post-pandemic. And so despite record benefit increases, wage increases, flexibility, we're still very much struggling with that. And so it impacts the way that hotels operate. First and foremost, um, for many hotels, they're not going to have the same food and beverage opportunities that they had before. Now, interestingly, that has been filled uh, in a significant way by food delivery services that became commonplace throughout the pandemic. And so when you previously had gone to a hotel and you might expect, you know, full service, 24-hour room service, most hotels aren't doing that anymore. But that guest is still able to get the food that they want and need from from a local delivery service. But, but yeah, the, the challenge of finding enough workers for hotels is uh, the number one issue and has been the number one issue for going on two years now. This is Louisiana Considered. We're speaking with AHLA President and CEO Chip Rogers. Where are you in hiring? Um, I'm seeing that it looks like 71% of respondents to a survey about uh, hotel hiring are increasing wages. Is that a trend that you see continuing through 2023? Absolutely. And, um, and we're significantly higher than the rest of the economy in wage increases. I think in general, we've been in a period here, especially during inflation, where wage increases uh, have hit the entire economy. Um, it's necessary to keep up with that inflation, no question about that. But we're running a good 40 to 50 percent higher uh, in, the, in the percentage of wage increase than the rest of the economy. And so many cities, uh, and New Orleans has certainly impacted this, but even if you go to places like Miami and Los Angeles, you know, starting wages for a housekeeper who has no experience and perhaps not even a high school education will be at least $23 an hour as a starting wage, and that's with full benefits. And so we've seen significant wage increases. We've seen flexibility. Uh, used to be in our industry, pre-pandemic, most housekeepers worked 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. because that's when guests started leaving the hotel, the rooms needed to be clean, and the other guests were wanting to check in. And so that was pretty standard. Now there's total flexibility. If you wanted to go work at a hotel and said, look, I can work one eight-hour shift a week, they'd probably offer you a job on the spot. And so the, the work flexibility um, is significant. Things like instant pay have become very common in the industry. And so from a benefit standpoint, from a pay standpoint, um, and from an opportunity standpoint, it's better than it's ever been. But even with all of that, we're still facing a situation where the industry needs hundreds of thousands of workers. And that uh, hotel demand also faces some challenges, not just in labor and staffing, but certainly in price increases, supply chain disruptions. Tell us a little bit about that. How do you deal with that right now? 
the reality is you still need a lot of people. And that's where the major cost increases have come. But in addition to that, you know, energy required to run the hotel, buying things like bed sheets and towels, all of those have become far more expensive. And so part of that is because of the, the, the supply chain disruptions that happen. Now, those are getting much, much better, but you also have the inflation layer on top of it. And so the price increases continued. And so when you look at the price of a hotel, it's gone up significantly over the last couple of years uh, in line with, with general um, inflation numbers that you see for the entire economy. But it's, it's definitely more expensive to stay in a hotel. And specifically, if you're in certain markets, certain hot markets like a Miami, a Tampa, a Phoenix, um, those are the cities that you've seen hotel prices go up considerably. Let's break down some of the categories. Here in Louisiana, of course, food and beverage is one of our favorite all-time. And you, I think you've made a whole lot of people very happy in this report by mentioning that in the food and beverage area, look for some good deals in seafood, which is, is another economy that's very important to Louisiana. Yeah, I, look, the, the, the one thing that's interesting is that um, the traveler now, and we saw this pre-pandemic, but the traveler now really wants the experience. And even if you're that business traveler and you are going to a specific place for a specific purpose, purpose for specific meetings, um, you're also now mixing in um, the things that you just as a human being want to partake in. And, and so anything around food and beverage in New Orleans may be the best city in America for that is going to continue to see uh, increased demand. And I know that the, the restaurant industry in New Orleans is just like the hotel industry and facing serious challenges with finding enough people. But I don't think the consumer demand is going to wane. In fact, I think it's only going to get more aggressive as people fully return to their normal types of travel. Let's talk a little bit about what you found that consumers want. It's it's not a complicated list. Um, they're essentially about, it looks like three things that consumer says, this is what's important to me. Uh, can you kind of go down those for us? Well, um, coming out of the pandemic, they want clean rooms. And, you know, I mentioned it earlier that there are so many hotels that are not able to operate at full capacity uh, and meet the full demand because they don't have enough employees. The one thing hotels won't do is sacrifice a clean room and guests want it more than, than ever before. And so, you know, a hotel will shut down a portion of the rooms to make sure that, that given the limited staff they have, that, that the rooms are being taken care of appropriately. And so clean rooms is, is clearly one. Um, even things like uh, staff wearing face masks. And I know in certain parts of the country that face mask usage has dropped to almost zero. In other parts of the country, it remains. Um, but there are clearly a, a desire among a good portion of the, of the travelers um, that Folks are going to be doing everything they can to keep that that air quality and, and keep the, the hotel as safe as possible. And so, I mean, those are some of the things that consumers are saying that they want. You know, pre-pandemic, when we asked people what were the most important things, cleanliness, frankly, never rose to the top of the, of the list. Right. Um, it was always at the bottom. It's, it's number three now after price and location. Price is always going to be number one. Location is always probably going to be number two because sometimes you have to go to a very specific place. But the fact that cleanliness is, is, is consistently number three now is, is quite interesting. Chip, this has been most informative. I want to thank you very much for the time you spent with us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 
American Hotel and Lodging Association President and CEO Chip Rogers. This has been Louisiana Considered. I'm Carl Lengel. Thanks to our guests, Brady Dennis and Chip Rogers. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman, Aubrey Procell, and Thomas Walsh. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience with additional support from Southern Strategy Group. Thank you.